cover, the things that our soul is so thirsty for, but oftentimes in the blindness of sin does not realize that we need. I pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, and for faith that will be quick, Lord, to have the direction that you're calling us this morning from your scriptures. Lord, I thank you that you have been so merciful, that you have condescended to make yourself known to us. Father, you cut through the haze of our sin and the blindness of the death that enshrouds us because of sin. And you've revealed to those who have been saved miraculously by your grace alone today the way of salvation. I pray that the horizons of our future would be opened up even more to us today, those that are in the faith, that we might be able to greater glorify you by walking in a manner worthy of our call. And for any here, Lord Jesus, who may still be caught in the quagmire of sin, I pray that the Scriptures and your Holy Spirit using this service would illuminate to their hearts, perhaps for the very first time, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected, ever ruling and reigning and extending to us salvation. For today is the day of salvation. We thank you that our hope belongs to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord and it can be ours when you grant it to us. It's the free gift that it is. I pray that our hearts would be receptive, Lord, and that we would be open to hearing all that you have for us and all that you've called us to and all that you might be glorified. Use this time, I pray, for your name's sake, Lord, and I pray that you would bypass the frailty of the vessel that brings your word and the sin that often clouds our own hearing, that we might all grow together closer to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's in that holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to open up the Scriptures today and to read of our salvation again. And to think about and meditate on and to declare to our own souls the things that Jesus Christ has purchased for all who are found in Him. The title of this morning's message is Generational Adultery. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. A provocative title to be sure, but the language for this message and the title itself comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. He, that is Jesus, answered them, the Pharisees, and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in this section, Jesus references this generation that is typified by the Pharisees and the class of people, this segment of people that has been so bold to question his authority time and again. He references the term generation three times. And in each case, in this section and in other passages in Matthew, it's in the context of warning. Jesus warns against an adulterous generation. That is a framework, a mentality, and a mindset of the heart that would be unfaithful to covenant terms. And so... Our very spiritual life depends on, hinges upon, understanding what generational adultery is. And then even more so, how to be faithful to the covenants of our Lord and to avoid this charge. Because this is so serious that there are none who are found on the day of the Lord's return in this indictment of generational adultery that will be saved. Jesus indeed pronounces judgment for this framework of mind, for this mindset. And so the stakes of warning and of truth are raised even higher as we read. Let's read this entire section here that we'll consider this morning in Matthew 12. We'll begin in verse 28, reading through to verse 42. Jesus is speaking and He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of, the, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with just this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Turn over a few pages with me to Matthew chapter 16. Just the first four verses are a near reiteration of these circumstances. This frame of mind that the Pharisees and Sadducees had was so obstinately set in their mind and in their souls that they failed to heed Jesus' warning They doubled down on their position, and they confronted Him yet again. Matthew 16, 1, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Him. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. He, Jesus, answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus, in this second occasion, same as the first, but in summary form, again excoriates the Pharisees and the Sadducees because of their discernment which was lacking their interpretive blindness. They were asking yet again for a sign from heaven while they remained oblivious to the signs of their times. If the mirror of the law, that is the truth of God's word and will revealed all through the scriptures, were to be placed in front of their face, and if they would have had eyes to see, that mirror would have revealed to them their generational adultery. They did not have eyes to see. Jesus had already declared the red and threatening sky of judgment justly hanging over the heads of these blind guides. There was a blindness and an obstinance in the heart of the Pharisees that did did not let them see, did not allow them to see the perspective of truth that Christ was declaring. Earlier in chapter 15, He had said in verse 12, after the disciples came to him. And they said, they brought to his attention, did you know, in in other words, that the Pharisees are offended when they heard what you have been saying? He answered, verse 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. And then Peter asked for him to clarify. Peter had a humility of heart that was desirous to hear the truth. 
Peter came to Christ as a rough-around-the-edges commoner and fisherman. Perhaps his life station afforded him a greater humility. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Christ presuming to judge Him. They would sit back and adopt this posture. Arms folded, toe-tapping, eyes squinted, rubbing the chin. Let me hear what you have to say. Not quite convinced. Show me the power that you have. Not quite convinced. Do you have anything else? The posture of their position in their pride and in their arrogance to presume to judge Christ as His superior was the blindness and the generational adultery that clouded their vision from seeing the truth, denied them the opportunity to see their sin, to repent, and to be accepted among those who Jesus had said in Matthew 5 were the poor, the brokenhearted, the meek, the wretched, the lowly, the diseased, the afflicted, the outcast, and those marginalized segments of society who came to Christ on different terms. This Matthew 16 passage, we've probably heard it referred to or applied most often as, hey, you've got to know the signs of the times. The Antichrist is just around the corner. There's big apocalyptic events. Haven't you read the newspapers, the news from Middle East, and so on? We get often preoccupied culturally with discerning the end of this space-time eschaton, and we like to think sometimes that events and chaos and war globally is a sign of the times. But in context, I think you'll find here as we've read that it is far more important, and indeed as far as that goes, the Scriptures say no man knows the day or the hour. But as far as discerning the times goes, Jesus is saying, use my word as the plumb line to know whether or not your generation is obstinate and blind and adulterous or whether you are bowing before my authority and accepting truth on my terms. The signs of the times today are ones that I judge to be lending themselves towards, indeed, a generational adultery. Anytime we are so proud that we presume to judge Christ on our terms, judge the Scriptures on our terms, and we do not humbly bow on His terms, we need a strong corrective rebuke, and hopefully the Spirit will give us ears to hear it. Last week's message was entitled, Covenantal Succession. And this message could well serve as maybe an addendum to that message or a second in the series. Last week we talked about the importance of the humbly recognizing that the things that God has done did not begin in our life, but began before time began itself. And God has been faithfully preserving the seed of the Messiah until the time that Jesus arrived. And He has faithfully preserved His witness, even His Scriptures, and the testimony of true Christianity through His remnant, the church, for now thousands of years. And God has given those who have been awakened to the truth the charge to tell others. And this charge we can be obedient to when we recognize humbly that we didn't figure it out on our own. We didn't make it up of our own creative ability. It didn't come to us by our merit, but it was a gracious, providential gift of the Lord of glory that we did not deserve that's been attended by a billion miracles reaching as far back into history as we can possibly imagine. In the Old Covenant, the nation's prosperity and longevity hinged on covenantal succession. Were they telling the next generation the faithful works of the Lord? Not boasting of their own intellectual power, ability, or acquisition of power and wealth, but instead testifying to the work of Christ mercifully, graciously, miraculously among them. If this generation did this and told the next generation about salvation by grace alone, as it was there pictured in the Old Testament, by the parting of the Red Sea, by the attending of the way of the Israelites through the wilderness, with manna provided for their daily food, with water springing from a rock at Meribah, with God winning their battles for them when they sent the song, 
those who were singing, the musicians in front of them, God confusing their enemies, routing their foes, preserving the nation, giving them His Word, providing His covenant by His own fingers writing, written form in their hands. If they remembered these things and told them to that next generation, they would not be guilty of generational adultery. But God would preserve them. He would build on His legacy through them. And the next generation would hear the faithful works of the Lord. And God would bless them immensely. Today we're learning from Matthew chapter 12 primarily. Set framework or mindsets or cultural conditioning or worldviews or values that a generation has that will not lend itself to covenantal succession that will hamper and stymie and handicap the work of the Lord going forward. And so it's important that we study this attentively and judge our own uh, life and condition of mind against this standard to make sure that if we are guilty of any of these charges that we would repent and humbly bow before the Lord. Here's a heading for you. There's four aspects of an adulterous generation that we can perhaps learn from this section. The heading is, An adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to the following. An adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to, number one, the manifest kingdom of God. Number two, the systemic heart of man. Number three, the sanctions of a hierarchical covenant. And I'll explain these in due course. And number four, revelatory contra distinctions. These four aspects we see in Matthew 12, verses 28 through 32. First of all, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were like-minded were blind to the manifest kingdom of God. Reading again in verse 28 through 32, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I, Jesus, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This on the heels of this miracle, verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. What was this miracle meant to show the people? To reveal to the Pharisees. It was meant to reveal to them, verse 28, the kingdom has come upon them. When there is a man walking among you who demonstrates the power and the authority of the Almighty Godhead such that he retains the power in his spoken word to set a man free from demons, to heal a withered hand, to raise the dead, then you will know the Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is among you. Now these signs were lost on a generation. Lost on a generation. And this, I'm telling you, is shocking. It is shocking that the framework of the sin-hardened heart of man could be so blind that if Jesus Christ was walking in the flesh among them, they would miss the clear and inarguable signs that the kingdom of God has come. Today, we don't have Jesus walking among us. However, we have this testimony from Scripture. It pains my heart and troubles me to think that if they were guilty in their sin, the Pharisees at this time, of missing the fact that the kingdom had arrived, how easy it might be for you and I to be obstinately blind to the kingdom's arrival, the kingdom's advancement, the kingdom's manifest, overflowing, and tangible work among us even today. The manifest kingdom of God is here. Jesus Christ has come. His church continues to preach the gospel. Thousands of pulpits, I trust, around the globe will ring with the word of God. As testimony to that fact, every church that preaches the orthodox truth of Christianity, every church that preaches the unadulterated gospel, this morning is evidence that God has preserved a witness to His kingdom. And His ambassadors and emissaries are proving that the kingdom of God has taken refuge and has advancing as far as, in at least that example, the testimony of its truth is apparent on the lips 
of all of its ambassadors, even this day, today. The Pharisees were blind to this, however. In verse 29, Jesus goes on to explain to them mercifully, it's not as if they deserved or had the right to demand this explanation. But in His kindness, Jesus nevertheless provides this opportunity, or this This situation provides a teaching opportunity and He mercifully grants a window into kingdom dynamics as we studied a couple of weeks ago in verse 29 and following. He says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house? Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus was going on to explain in this section that the evidence of kingdom dynamics was plain out before the eyes and ears of those who were before him and witnessing his mighty works and deeds. The strong man in this section is the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth, Satan himself. Indeed, the one who the Pharisees referred to as Beelzebul, the prince of demons, in verse 24. Jesus said, what you are witnessing before you is a stronger ruler of a stronger kingdom entering into this realm, binding him with chains that can't be broken, limiting his power for his sovereign purposes and setting up his rule where Satan once thought he reigned. Jesus came to earth and indeed this was the purpose of his life. His death and his resurrection was to bind and render powerless the control of Satan over the destiny of the elect. There is no one in the blood of Christ, under the blood of Christ, who is any longer held captive to Satan. Satan is bound. We swear allegiance to a stronger man. We see his power bound on the cross. That is the curse and death of sin. We see his power broken in the resurrection, eternal death and damnation. We see his rule to deceive the nations thwarted in the ascension as Jesus Christ was risen, now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the, fa- of the Father. The stronger man Jesus Christ has come, he has bound Satan, and he was tying Satan in knots before the eyes and ears of the Pharisees at this time yet because of their generational adultery, because they had broken covenant in their heart with the Father. They did not see what was going on. They did not see the evidence of the kingdom come and the will being done of the heavenly Father in heaven on earth before their eyes and ears. O church, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear through the gospel message of the Scriptures that Satan is bound on the cross, stripped of his power in the resurrection, and we are ruling and reigning with the strong man Jesus Christ because of his ascension. And one day we'll join him there shortly, but assuredly. And this section of Scripture is proof that if we are in Christ, we certainly will. An adulterous generation is obstinately blind to the manifest kingdom of God. This, this section of Scripture will not be understood, will be mocked and dismissed by any who do not first admit the supernatural in the first place. We live in a generation, many of us philosophically in this generation deny the supernatural in the first place. If you deny the supernatural, you will deny the manifest kingdom of God. You will not recognize the power of the enemy for what it is, neither will you recognize the power of Christ for what it is. There is a supernatural. And because of a supernatural act of Creator God, we exist. And because of a supernatural redemptive act of Jesus Christ, His Son, we will exist in worship and fellowship with Him for eternity. We must also recognize as we see in this section, that the kingdom of darkness is subordinate to the kingdom of light. There is a power of evil that reigns on this earth by limited measure. And its measure is limited by the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Lord of glory. 
At the end of Matthew, we see this emphatically declared in Christ's own words when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that the kingdom of darkness is subordinate to the kingdom of light. That means the devil answers to God. Too often in our consciousness, we think of the war for our soul as two forces with equal power butting head to head. And it's an almost, and it's a tense and struggle, and the devil might get the upper hand, or he's getting the upper hand, and that's a sort of dualistic notion of ultimate realities. But it's not true. The kingdom of darkness is subordinate to the kingdom of light. Satan is under the thumb of God Almighty. He is stripped of his power by Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and the Lord of eternal life. And the work of the cross was not a work of defeat, but it was a work of triumph. It was a work of defeat for Satan, but triumph for Christ. Now, if you ultimately deny this reality, if you ultimately deny the supernatural, ultimately deny that there's a kingdom manifest among us, ultimately deny that the nature and character of God is such that He has made a way in sending Christ as the mediator between God and man to reconcile us with Him. If you ultimately deny that, it is, I take it to mean here, the unpardonable blasphemy, the unforgivable sin. Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Perhaps another way to summarize this truth is that the ultimate denial of the very nature of God, which renders His righteousness communicable to man, is the most fearful sin of all sins. It's been said, if you're worried that you have committed this sin and there's a twinge of fear that crosses your soul as we read this, then that itself is proof that you have not. We're talking about a hardness of heart that would hate what I just said that would rail against it. We're talking about a hardness of heart that fights tooth and nail to the core of the being to slaughter, to kill, and to stamp out the truth claims of Scripture. And this is a frightening place to be, and this is where the Pharisees found themselves. After Jesus had healed a man's hand in 12.13, He said, stretch out your hand, the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But notice the reaction of the adulterous generation. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him. How to destroy him. This hatred of God at the very core level that never repents, that never comes to the truth, that remains obstinate to everything that the Bible declares as righteous and true is indeed the most fearful state that the soul could ever find itself in. And if you're sitting here today, and if any of this is resonating with you as we read, let's thank the Lord that against all odds, He has delivered us from a hardness and an obstinance to the truth of Scripture, such that light has broken through the blackness of our soul and given us the conscious thought that there is a God. He's righteous and holy. I'm a sinner and only by His grace can I be saved. And if you find yourself relating to that thought, you can thank the Lord that the worst of sins and indeed all sins are covered so long as your heart condition is one that God has sovereignly made pliable to the truth revealed in His holy word. Number two, an adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to the systemic heart of man. And this builds on the first point. Verse 33 and following, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Verse 34, Jesus uses this language to characterize the naysayers. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. An adulterous generation remains blind to the systemic heart of man. Systemic means, so as the root goes, 
so does the stem, so does the leaves, so does the fruit. The, the nature of the heart is the source from which the actions of the lips and of the hands and of the thoughts spring. Jesus has said this again in a different way in chapter 15. Jesus says in 16, chapter 15, verse 16, He said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The generational adultery of the Pharisees rendered them guilty of thinking that they could fix something on the outside for what was ultimately an internal problem. The truth was the Pharisees couldn't rearrange the surface. They couldn't do certain acts to justify themselves. They couldn't come up with a convoluted way to self-justify themselves so that they might earn salvation, measure themselves among themselves, and find themselves ultimately in good standing before the Lord. No, there was the systemic heart of man that convicted them. Jesus called this kind of thinking akin to whitewashed tombs. The sepulchers look great on the outside, but inside is dead man's bones. And if we legitimately come to salvation, if we legitimately come to awareness of self, the nature of ourselves before the holiness of God, we come admitting that our heart is deceitfully wicked, that it has never been in right standing with the Lord and never can be unless He changes our heart. For it is from the innermost parts of our being, the core of our motives, our thinking, and our values, our wishes, our desires, our pursuits. It is from that core that springs a self-centered, autonomous notion that really finds attractive the lie of original sin. You can be as God, deciding for yourself good and evil. You need not submit to a rule over, above, and outside yourself you can be your own law. And this was the lie in the garden, continues to be the lie of today. And it is the lie that resonates with every unregenerate heart. It is the lie of the heart that feels it reserves the right to be a judge for himself. But indeed, the righteous judge is speaking here, and he t- speaks of a day of judgment where people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And when we say the words that we do, though they might sound good among ourselves, and you or I may not be able to discern the heart behind them, this is not true of the omniscient. The omniscient knows the heart of man, and he knows hypocrisy when he sees it. And Jesus Christ is able and will judge the every thought and intention, the the every outworking of the flesh that has been symptomatic of a heart in spite of how good it looks on the surface. Jesus has already delivered this indictment of hypocrisy in Matthew 6, when he says in verse 1, Beware of those practicing their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, and so on. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you see the difference here. Between hypocrisy and true worship. True worship does it for the Lord and finds the affirmation of God in justifying His soul by His power and grace alone to be His hope, His security, and the motive of His worship. Whereas the hypocrite does things to look good on the surface. They pray to be seen of men. They give alms to be seen of men. They fast to be seen of men. And when we do this, we grant to man the power of reward. We grant to man the power of judgment. And this is a lawless condition that fails to recognize that God is the ultimate judge. And we are no good judge of ourselves, nor are each other. We must realize, if we are going to wake up from the stupor of our sin, that the heart of man is systemically evil. Jesus gives three kinds of imagery to reveal this to us. The fruit, 
and the tree, first of all, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. So there we have a picture of the tree bearing good tree, bearing good tr- fruit, or a bad tree bearing bad fruit. We also have the picture of vipers. Here you brood of vipers, Jesus says. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Everything that the Pharisees put forth, purported, and spoke, and as an outworking of their inner character, was venomous to the cause of Christ, because at heart they were like snakes. They were more united in their identity with the devil than they were with the Lord, in spite of how self-righteous they felt. And the third picture he gives is treasure. It says in verse 35, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And as we judge ourselves against this standard, it's so important that when we seek our seek for the Lord to reveal Himself to us, as we shut the doors of our prayer closet, and as we lift up prayers to Him, that we ask Him to place inside of us His treasures, to place inside of us a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone, to take away our identity with sin and the enemy, and replace it with identity in Christ. And if we do this, we will have eyes to see. God gives eyes to see, and it's evident that He gives them when the man is able to, anyone is able to, before the truth of the gospel, admit that they are a sinner. It's very simple. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And only in God's mercy can their heart be changed. Bad tree changed to a good tree. Brood of snakes changed to children who have a heart of humility, desiring to learn and faith in the Heavenly Father. And then a treasury, a store of riches, of Christ's merit from the inside that God replaces with our sinful tendencies. And then we begin to speak and to act out of that new wellspring. Number three, an adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to the sanctions of a hierarchical covenant. Sanctions means terms, conditions, or punishment. In other words, when the covenants of old would be made, it would be an agreement between two parties, and if you were to break covenant, there would be repercussions. There would be punishment, that would be the sanctions. Hierarchical refers to higher authority structures over lower authority structures. In Matthew 12, verse 38, Jesus speaks of this adulterous generation again to reread these, first, or these two verses. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Why does Jesus use excuse me, the language of marital unfaithfulness here? Why does he attach this adjective of adulterous to this generation represented by the Pharisees' thinking? Well, quite simply, adultery, as all of us know, I trust in marriage, is a breach in the covenant relationship of marriage. Adultery in marriage is a breaking of the promise to the spouse to remain faithful unto her or unto him until death do us part. And that breaking of the covenant is serious. And in a covenant ceremony, namely a marriage, for instance, there is a vow that is taken. The couple stands before a congregation like this, and we often include language such as, in the presence of God and these witnesses, I make my vow to be faithful unto my spouse until death do us part. And this is a commitment. This is a covenant. It has terms, two parties, repercussions, and sanctions. The couple promises to remain faithful to one another. And so this is the covenantal language of Scripture. This is replete throughout. From the very moment that man sinned and God intervened, there was covenantal language. God was one party and man was another. And he sealed in covenant terms whereby, if the parties were faithful, there could be a unity, a relationship there. 
Some of us have been reading chronologically through the Old Testament. If you're joining the Providence, read through the Bible in a year list. And if you have, you've gone through the book of Deuteronomy. There's a scholar, an Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein, who wrote a lot about the structure of that book, Deuteronomy. And his thesis is that the book of Deuteronomy follows a basic covenantal legal document of what would have been familiar in the experience of covenanting parties at the time when Moses was delivering God's word to the people. In other words, it's amazing how God is so gracious to deliver, if Meredith Klein's contention is true, his truth and his word in a framework that we can understand. You see, in the Old Covenant, there were nations that would make treaties and they would come to terms at, after a period of war for terms of peace or truce or treaty or that kind of thing. And you would typically have the more powerful party and the lesser party. Let's say Babylon conquers Israel. <clears throat> and they allow Israel to continue under certain terms with a certain amount of autonomy to rule their state. But there were sanctions. If they decided that they wanted to take more territory, there would be repercussions if they would break that covenant. These were, these were called suzerain treaties. <clears throat> and suzerain treaties... The word suzerain means a higher lord or an overlord, where a covenant between, typically, a more powerful king and a lesser king. So the lesser king and the more powerful king would come together at the table, and this covenant relationship would be written down often. And it would begin with a preamble, introducing the parties, and then it would go on to a historical prologue. This is the history of our relationship one to another. Thirdly, it would give the stipulations of the covenant. This is what we agreed to. Fourthly, curses and blessings ratifying the covenant based on faithfulness to it. If you recall the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28 would come to your mind for sure. But you move through the book and you see it's arranged in this way. And finally, succession arrangements or covenant continuity. This covenant would be reiterated to the next generation dovetailing with our theme from last week. And finally, there would be an invocation of witnesses. We call these parties to witness the terms we're coming to today, and there would be a direction for a public reading to publish the covenant and make it known. So these are the hierarchical terms of covenant in Scripture. And obviously, and apparently in this model, in this example, we know immediately who the higher king is in our covenant relationship. It's the king of kings. And if God, as the ultimate suzerain, makes a relationship with us, fallen man, who has rebelled against his rule, we ought to be so mindful of that relationship that we don't get the two upside down. If a lesser king got proud in his tiny little realm, wanted to take up the sword against the empirical forces that surrounded him on all sides, that rebellion would be put down in an instant as Babylon and the greater suzerain would send his army to quell the rebellion. And in similar language and in similar terms, we are to understand our relationship to the Lord. He is the perfect, holy, omnipotent, greater king. And we are the rebellious, lesser party in this covenant. And now, with that in mind, do you see how an adulterous generation sees the two reversed? That is, a generation who sees themselves as important and more than they are, as proud and elevated above God, presuming to judge Him or question Christ and His authority. That generation is not mindful of the terms of humility that are demanded in their relationship to the Almighty. They have broken covenant. They don't understand the situation. They are among those who are listed here in Jesus' own words as an evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, Christ says. So the greater king would typically come to the table and demand a sign or demand the covenant terms of the lesser, not the other way around. So for the Pharisees to come to Christ and say, Oh, you want us to accept you? Well, we demand a sign. Was for them to place themselves as a judge over Christ. 
And this was an adulterous position to be in. And it was an, an ultimately a denial of the terms of covenant that were seen all through Scripture. And it was a testimony of their lawlessness. Jesus had iterated the covenant and He had made His declaration in Matthew chapters 5-7 through seven again. He had declared that He was the arbiter and the judge of truth. And we've recognized Him now at this point in His gospel as delivering His as judge, as king, as prophet, as priest. And He closes His first discourse by saying, and many will come one day, and, he, and seek favor in His presence, and He will say, Depart from Me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. He says, Everyone who hears these words of Mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of Mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And so as Jesus condemns lawlessness, He affirms covenant keeping and He declares to us the sanctions of a hierarchical covenant. He is king. He is prophet. He is priest. He is Lord. And we come to Him as children. We humbly accept His terms. We do not put terms on Him, impose our own terms on Him. The adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to these sanctions of the hierarchical covenant of God to us. Final point this morning. An adulterous generation remains obstinately blind to revelatory contradistinctions. Contrary to the Pharisees, to draw distinction between the proud and the humble That's the term contradistinction there. Jesus gives two examples in context, and I would like to add one from the beginning of Matthew. So in other words, an opposition or distinct from or conversely from the mindset of the Pharisees, there are three examples of covenant faithfulness that Jesus gives. And these are revelatory. They reveal something of the way we ought to act in His presence. The first one, is the people of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah. The second is the impression that the Queen of Sheba had when she visited Solomon's realm. And the third is the wise men that came from the east to visit Christ, which we'll visit in closing. First of all, Jonah, verse 40. We'll rewind to 39. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, the book of Jonah, that is, chapter 3, records these events for us. It is amazing to see the effect that the mere Word of God had upon this people. Do you remember the circumstances? You have a highly developed, civilized nation by many worldly standards, utterly and totally corrupt. And they were in such a frame of mind as to deny the Lord in every conceivable way. And to this wicked and perverse and adulterous generation, God says one sends one unlikely fellow, himself quite obstinate, a reluctant prophet, Jonah. Jonah hates this mission, and even though God, upon his rebellion, has him eaten by a fish and spit up on the land, and then finally Jonah obeys, he's angry that the people listen to him. He's upset because they actually came to his altar call. He wanted God to judge this people. So here is a man in his external demeanor that any, any like discerning Ninevite would know hates them. But he's preaching something that's true. And listen to the effect that the unadulterated and exclusive 
word of God had on this generation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. This is Jonah chapter 3. The great city and call out against it that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. One sentence sermon. Yet forty days. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And do you see how the people of Nineveh were so different than the Pharisees? They didn't ask Jonah, who says, show me a sign. They looked at themselves, their debauchery, their idolatry, their wickedness, their fornication, everything else, their lawless hearts, their murder, their pride. And they immediately said, you're right. And they confessed. They believed God. All they needed to hear was the truth, and they repented. How will it fare on the day of judgment for those who remain unconvinced when they hear the truth from Jesus Christ himself, when a reluctant reluctant prophet with a bad attitude said one sentence, and that was enough to to convict a whole city. The word reached not just the people, but all the way up, to the authority structure of Nineveh. Verse 6, the word reached the kingdom of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. From the pauper to the king, there was humility and repentance. There was not this generational adultery that refused the word of the Lord until it came on their terms. There was a confession of sin, no matter if the person wore the robes of the magistrate or the rags of a beggar. And Jesus is saying, that is a testimony that you would do well to heed. Just as Jonah was in The belly of this fish for three days and three nights, there would be an additional sign for these people. The Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, that is Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah was here. So in summary, Jesus, using the revelatory contradistinction of the people of Nineveh against the hard-hearted Pharisees in this adulterous generation, he brought to their attention that Nineveh repented when confronted by the word of God alone. Whereas this generation that he was speaking to was blind to the attending signs that Jesus was doing before them. And indeed, this generation would be complicit and responsible for Jesus' own death as they called for his execution at the cross. They said, may his blood be upon us and on our children. And so they went on to perpetrate this act, this horrible and gross sin against the Lord of glory. And that act witnesses against anyone who does not repent of it. And so Jesus' own resurrection from the death that this party inflicted upon him and those like-minded and indeed all principally unified in that rebellion in their sin compounded their culpability. And I would say by extension with each successive generation on the earth today, our plausible deniability, if you will, is diminished. It is not increased. In other words, we of all people, less than the people that heard Jesus preach, less than the people of Nineveh, less than any previous generation, have any right or any plea to stand before God and say, You didn't show me a sign. You didn't prove yourself. That is the heart 
of an adulterous generation. God has shown himself faithful. Imagine your own family line. How is it that God preserved my parents, my parents, parents, my parents, 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 as far back as you can imagine, to bring me life today? If not for his providential grace, and every one of you in this room can say and ought to say the same. And that is the heart of one who realizes the tender, loving kindness of our God and humbly bows before his lordship and says, I am a sinner. I have remained blind, but I recognize that the Ninevites will rise up in judgment against me unless I join them, unless I join them in sackcloth and ashes. You can read further in your own time. The second example of contradistinction, the queen of Sheba, queen of the south, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. The wisdom articulated through Solomon was ringing throughout the land and it drew international attention. So people came to see the evidence of the favor of the Lord and the reign of Solomon and everything that he was famous for, including the mark of God's favor upon his life that was evident in his wisdom and in the wealth and the great prosperity of his realm. And if there was ever a king that commanded that kind of attention in history, how much more the king of kings. And this brings me to the third contradistinction, which is the passage that we opened with this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, this king drew international attention of other aristocrats, if you will. There were foreign dignitaries that came to commemorate the birth of the one who would come and ransom all of the redeemed and rule and reign and shepherd his people Israel. In Matthew 2, verse 6, the prophecy was, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. These wise men were referred to earlier in this section as coming from the east, taking a pilgrimage and a journey to Jerusalem. After listening to Herod's words in verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child, the child, mind you, with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And again, this testimony in Matthew's gospel from the beginning to the point we're at here, by these contradistinctions, as against those who presume to judge Christ, as against those who allow themselves to become hardened and generational adultery. It begs the question, how will it fare on Judgment Day when the wise men stand as they are subpoenaed to witness against those who refuse to bow before the ruling and reigning Christ when they saw Him for who He was as a toddler? How will it stand on the Day of Judgment when the wise men, the Queen of the South, and the men of Nineveh Rise as witness against those who have been, as I mentioned before, the beneficiaries of the greatest record of God's providence, historically speaking, thus far. That is why it is so vitally important that we, a most privileged people, to receive the completed word of God, to witness the favor and faithfulness of God in our own lives, And to even hear his gospel truth in a message like this, it is so vitally important that if we find any shades of adultery, that is, covenant-breaking, that Jesus is speaking to here, where we don't see ourselves in light of the truth, that we would repent, that we might be made like children with soft hearts, like the wise men who journeyed from the east, no distance too great, not worthy of, the, of traveling when you're going to see the King of Kings. That we might be like the men of Nineveh who gladly humble ourselves, even at the scorn of our neighbors, as we take on the equivalent of humility represented in sackcloth and ashes and fasting. And we, like the Queen of the South, might be compelled at the preaching of the 
amazing truth and wisdom of Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture to leave the familiar surroundings of our own thinking behind and to discover this truth that we do not know, but hopefully by God's grace are so desirous to understand. Let's close in prayer that this would be the case for us. O Heavenly Father, I pray that knees of hearts would bow before your Lordship this morning. Father, I pray that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit would bring to our attention any areas of our heart that might have been obstinately blind to the truth of yourself revealed in Scripture. Lord, if this is taking place in our lives, if we find reason to leave behind pride and embrace the humility of realizing that you rule and reign and conquer in your life and death and resurrection and ascension, then we have proof enough that we are in the good graces of the Almighty and will join in fellowship and assembly once again, hopefully next week as you lead us here, but certainly at that marriage supper of the Lamb. We will rejoice together, every one of us, whether a Ninevite, a wise man, a queen of the south, a wretch, a pauper, the diseased outcast, the sinner in the 21st century, or the person who is least likely to receive salvation, whoever they may be, might share with joy in our hearts an eternal sparkle in our eyes, the testimony of our salvation when the almighty Christ intervened in the sinner's heart and ushered him into his presence on his terms by his blood for his glory. And it's in that holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.